The time has finally come for you to learn how to study the Bible. Never been done before, never to be repeated again. This podcast shows you how to study the Bible. Turn back now, remain biblically illiterate. Proceed and have your life changed by the Bible. The choice is yours. All right, people, let's get to it. I'm Reverend Ryan, a deacon in the Anglican Church in North America, and I'm in the process of becoming a priest. But enough about me. Let's get to why we're actually here. We are covering Jonah 1, 17 through 2, 10 today. What are we doing? Learning how to study the Bible on learntostudythebible.org. That's right. Share that with your friends, please. Okay, so how are we going to do this today? How are we going to learn to study the Bible through studying Jonah 1, 17 through 2, 10? It's very easy. Like we always do, we're going to address the text according to its book-level narratival flow. So there's a book level. There's a book level, right? We're reading the book as a whole. We're following the narrative. We're following the flow of the narrative. But we're studying right now at the segment level, which is 117 through 210. So just like any other movie, any other story, any book, there are different scenes. We're all familiar with this stuff. And so one of the scenes in this book is 117 through 210. For example, you know, John, the book of John is split 1 through 3, 4 through 12, 13 through 18, and 19 through 21. So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. In John 4 through 12, you're going to find that he's revealing himself, that he's the Christ, that he's the Messiah, all these other things, right? Which I know Christ and Messiah, same thing. I get the point. But he's demonstrating through what he's doing who he actually is. But then in John 13 through 18, Jesus demonstrates or speaks exclusively to his disciples for from chapter 13 to chapter 18. If you've ever watched the, the movie, The Gospel of John, with uh, Jesus is played by that actor. I can't remember his name, but he's, the, he's Desmond on Lost. So Jesus is being played by this guy. And in this movie, in The Gospel of John, it's a word for word. It might be New, New King James. It's actually pretty cool. It, it puts the whole movie into perspective. But what it does, uh, it puts the whole book into perspective because it's acted out, right? But what's cool about it is that it is a word-for-word movie. Everything that's said in the book of John, in whatever translation it is, is said in the movie, The Gospel of John. You can watch it. It's free on YouTube. Uh, It's like three hours. But when you get to John 13 through 18 in the book, What happens in the movie is Jesus just goes on and on and on. And because we're so used to watching movies and shorter scenes, you begin to legitimately, (laughs) you begin to ask yourself, like, how much longer is this scene going to be? You, You get tired of hearing Jesus talk. And you only get tired of hearing Jesus talk because you're used to watching movies in the 20th century, them being edited, shot in certain ways. And in this scene, it's this forever, what feels like forever, scene of Jesus talking in John 13 through 18. And who is he talking to? To his disciples. And then 19 through 21 is the outro. 
So that's an example of how books are really just split into different portions, into different segments, so on and so forth. And the same thing is happening here in Jonah. So today, one of the, we, one of the ways that we're learning to study the Bible is studying it through the segment level. And then we're going to give examples, or I'm going to give examples of how the context aids in interpretation. But since we're attacking it from the segment level, we have to ask ourselves a, que a question, actually several questions, or questions the entire time, really. So the first question we have today is, what is the main purpose of this segment? Now, you guys already know what's happened previously. I'm not going to rehearse it. But if since you've been following along, and because we're all students of the Bible here, I'll get straight to the point, which is it brings the focus in on the prophet, whereas previously the prophet was involved with the sailors and all kinds of other things going on. Now we're looking at just the prophet. Obviously, the giant fish is involved, but that's just a very, very short uh, amount of time compared to the amount of verses in what we call chapter two. We also see the prophet get his head straight, right? Uh, head back on straight. And it, it appears to be the climax of the first half of the book. It also functions as the final scene of Jonah's descent. Now, remember, Jonah starts out going in, going, um, where's he at? He's in Joppa and he's flees, fleeing to Tarshish. But it says he goes down to Tarshish. Do I have that right? Sorry, no, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So either way, he's going down. And then he goes down into the ship. And then he goes down into the inner part of the ship where he enters into divine communication. And if you're wondering how that's so, listen to the previous episode. It addresses him going into sleep or going to sleep, which is not really actually sleep. But then he gets tossed out of the ship and goes down into the water. And then he goes further down into the inner parts of the fish. And then when you read the psalm and the prayer in, in Jonah chapter 2, you find out he goes down into the depths of the sea, down into the depths of Sheol, so on and so forth. So the purpose of this segment, the last purpose of this segment, insofar as I can tell, is that it functions as the final scene of Jonah's descent. Because from that point on, Jonah no longer descends. In fact, he starts going upward in various ways. So the main theme, right? What is the main theme of the segment and how does it relate to the overall book? Well, you guys know I've been beating this point into a pulp the entire time because that's what the book is beating into a pulp. That is to say that Yahweh, as it says, what is this? Chapter four, verse, uh, let's see here. Should have this memorized by now, right? Four, verse two, where Jonah says, and this is not the only place in the book. It's in Jonah, Micah, and Nahum. Jonah says that Yahweh is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah says that that's who God is. That's who Yahweh is. And this segment leaves us little doubt, you guys, that Yahweh is such a God. Because we know that Jonah's knowingly disobeying, but as we pay attention and as we read the story, we find out that Yahweh, in the midst of of Jonah being disobedient, Yahweh inspires Jonah to pray for his prosperity, and Yahweh responds to the very prayer that he gives Jonah. So absolutely, Yahweh is a merciful God who relents from disaster. And in fact, as I said last week, uh, Jonah is rescued by the fish. 
Yahweh is a patient God. And so that's the main theme of this segment overall. But the main, um, what's the word I'm looking for? How, what, what, what type of literature are we reading when we come across chapter 2? We're reading a psalm. Now, you guys, I'm, you guys already know what psalms are. You're educated. You're biblical students. We know that psalms are songs. But did you know that psalms are prophecy? Well, of course you know that psalms are prophecy, right? They're in the Bible, and they're inspired by God. And I've told you guys uh, previously that prophecy is not just telling of the future. It's declaring something from God. So, so 2 Samuel 23, 1 through 7, is David prophesying. And then it says that David prophesies by the Spirit of Yahweh. But when you read 2 Samuel 23, 1 through 7, you look at it in your English Bibles, and what do you see? You see it written as poetry, right? The, the, the formatting of the words on the page demonstrate this is not your normal wording, or this is not the normal way in which you write a paragraph. It's communicating to us how it's laid out on the page of the formatting that this is poetry. And this poetry is through the mouth of David, but 2 Samuel 23, 1-7 says that these, this poetry, is our, these words are actually Yahweh's words. So it's a psalm. Psalms are poetry. Psalms are prophecy. Psalms are inspired. What we know about psalms as well is that the psalms, as far as in the book, you know, the, the section of our, our uh, Bible we call the psalms, this, the psalms, is considered the prayer book of the Jews the prayer book of the first Christians, and the prayer book of God's holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. That is what has been received throughout the entire world at all times and in all places, and what has been handed down by the apostles. That's what the Psalms are. But our question today, one of our questions today, when we read Jonah 1, 17 through 2, 10, we have to ask ourselves, in, in, in particular, in 2, 2 through 9, is this a psalm? We have to ask ourselves, would the ancient audience have interpreted this to be a psalm? Are all psalms inspired? What's the basic definition of a psalm? Is it like Moses' song of victory in Exodus 15? You guys remember that? So in Exodus 14, right, you have all this... Um, stuff going on, the battle between Pharaoh and Yahweh, and then they go through the sea, and the sea comes back, you know, they go through the sea on the dry ground, the sea falls back on Pharaoh's, uh, Pharaoh's people, his army. Moses stops, and he turns around, and he declares, he sings this psalm of victory in Exodus 15, the song of victory. Is this a psalm or just a song? Was it inspired? Well, we would consider it to be inspired, right? It's in the Bible. That's our first clue. By the way, if you read Revelation, you find out that at some point, whenever this happens in Revelation, we won't get into it right now, uh, Moses' song continues to be sung in the future. Habakkuk 3, is, is that a basic definition of a song? Is Judges 5, where Deborah goes on and sings about her victory that God has given her because she stood up and obeyed the Lord, whereas the man, Barak, did not? Deuteronomy 32, is that a psalm? Is that the definition of a psalm? When I say, is that the or a definition, right? I'm asking which one. Is this a definition 
Or is this the definition? And other examples are Numbers 21 and 2 Samuel 22. Or, and those are verses, right? Numbers 21, 17, 2 Samuel 22, 1. We have to ask ourselves questions and not presume to know what Psalms are. Or well, not to presume to know what we're reading, right? And that's the whole purpose of what we do here. We are learning to study the Bible. But in regard to Psalms, what we know with certainty, so this is a quote I'm going to read from William P. Brown's Oxford Handbook of the Psalms on page 486. He says, it is the best attested to book among the Dead Sea Scrolls. There are more copies of the Psalms than of any other biblical book. What does that tell you? I think most of you will probably come to the same conclusion. The Psalms were infinitely important to God's people. And to this day, they still are. Another interesting thing, so talking about the community at Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, I'm going to try to say this name here. If I mess it up or mix it up, forgive me. And you guys probably won't even write it down because it's, you know, the, the, the way they label the, the various scrolls from the Dead Sea Scrolls is quite interesting. So... I'm going to talk about 11QPS and then superscript A, and then uh, this would be 28 in Roman numerals, and then the regular number 11. One more time, that's 11QPS superscript A, 28 in Roman numerals, and the number 11. This scroll says Brown, and he's quoting Sanders' book. Uh, what's his book? It's called, let me see here. Well, of course, the Psalms scroll of Qumran Cave 11. <laughs> I could have just wrote that earlier. Uh, this particular, about when it comes to the Psalms, the people, the community at Qumran, they say that David composed 4,050 compositions through prophecy, which was given to him, or which was given him from before the Most High. So remember I talked to you guys last time about the Divine Council and how a prophet stands in the Divine Council before the Most High God and receives words and then declares these words to his people. Well, the community at Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls are from, they're saying that David composed 4,050 compositions, different psalms, and that these are all prophetic so we have to understand that when we look at Psalms, history says, our Bible says, not just church fathers, you know, those guys, sure, right? They know some things, but you go even farther back and our whole faith from the beginning has considered a Psalm to be inspired words given from before the throne to the individual so that they might say these things back out loud. Now, sometimes they say it to an audience. Here in Jonah's case, he says it to Yahweh. Now, you know, when we read the, uh, when we read the narrative, we don't find that Jonah is anywhere other than in the fish's insides, not belly, but insides. We'll get to that in a moment. Either way, the point being that, that how our Christian history and our ancient history from which the Christianity stems We've always understood the Psalms to be inspired. That's very important. We're going to come back to that because of the content of the Psalms. Because I'm going to make some claims here in a little bit that might have people's eyes roll in the back of their head or want to shut the uh, whole podcast off. But hey, 
That's what we do here on LearnToStudyTheBible.org, right? We let the text speak. And speaking of the text, let's get to it. So we're going to start in 117, which says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, there, we got to the text. But now let's talk about 117. So the Qumran, this is another quote from uh, Jack M. Sasson's book that I've been interacting with the entire time. It's on page 147. He says that the Qumran scroll of the 12 prophets, that's of which Jonah is found in, right, does not recognize any boundary between the sailors' prayers and the arrival of the fish. Only after the fish spews Jonah forth does, it, does um, its scribe leave a vacant space to indicate the beginning of a new episode. Okay, let me pause the quote and explain that to you guys. So when you're reading this in Hebrew, when you're reading the Qumran scroll in Hebrew, you're going to find out that in, in Hebrew, there isn't a 117 and a 2-1. Now, that kind of makes sense, right? Because we, uh, we all generally understand that this numbering system did not come until around the medieval times. However, there were ways... Because it's not like we invented the, the sections or segments or something like that. The author decided when to divide up the text. This text is not divided up into another section until the end of what we call 2.10. Or in Hebrew, it would be 2.11. To put it simply, 1.1 to 2.10 is one segment in the Hebrew. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, very specifically. So that is to say that, that we should not be reading this in English, interpreting chapter 2 as chapter 2. In fact, what the, Dead Sea, what the Dead Sea Scrolls demonstrate is that we should be reading the first half as one entire story. It's appropriate to split it up into halves, and I'll get to that here in a second. But 1-1 through 2-10 is technically one entire section. And we're reading a segment of that section. And the Qumran community, the Dead Sea Scrolls, they show that that break in the text, which they actually literally make a break in the text, that happens in between 2.10 and 3.1. Or in Hebrew, it would be 2.11 and 3.1. So let me continue in this quote from Jack uh, M. Sasson's Jonah, Anchor Bible, uh, page 147. So Sasson continues, numbering for chapters is a relatively recent phenomenon taking place in the medieval times. New chapters normally give a story occasion to head in a new or in a radically different direction. Nothing. Okay, end of quote. Now think about this. 3-1, Jonah goes to Nineveh, right? Before that, Jonah's been running. From 1-1 to 2-10, Jonah's been running. From 3-1 to the, uh, what is this, 4.11, so basically to the end of the book, we have Jonah obeying and feeling some kind of way about it as well. But the point is there's a radically different direction. There's a different change. And when you read this in Hebrew, you're going to find out that the Qumran scroll, which, again, it's older than the Masoretic text, it treats 1.1 through 2.10 as one section, but it does add that space between 2.10 and 3.1. So let me just read a little quote here from, I struggled with this guy's name the last time I said it, and people struggle with my last name all the time. So 
so I can relate to this guy. But it's German, and I'm an American, so what do you expect? Uh, Ernst Werthwein. It's W-U with the two dots above it. R-T-H-W-E-I-N. So on page 30 and 31 of his book, which is the text of the Old Testament, an introduction to the Biblica Hebraica, we'll go with Ernst. We'll call him Ernst. Ernst says, on starting on page 30, he says, Textual divisions are already found in the Qumran scrolls, in biblical as well as non-biblical manuscripts. The ending of a principal section is marked by an open line, followed by the beginning of a new line, either with or without an indentation. This rather explicit indication or indication of the text divisions in the biblical manuscripts at Qumran increases one's awareness that divisions in the text go back not only to the consonantal text of the Masoretes, those are the guys who copied it, right? Back to the quote, but to the early history of the text as well. The Masoretes then did not invent a system of divisions. But, as one might expect, in their interest in preserving the text, they accepted one, testing and expanding it systematically. Two kinds of divisions were developed in parallel in the Masoretic manuscripts. One was a system of pericopes, or lessons, right, marked as lessons for reading in the synagogue. Let me say that again, marked as lessons for reading in the synagogue. And the other was a sense of units as an aid for interpretation. Let me say that last part again. And the other was a sense of units as an aid for interpretation. So what we're doing here on LearnToStudyTheBible.org is not a recent invention. It's not a modern invention. It's not the Reverend Deacon Ryan Kaysen's invention. What it is, is following the ancient manuscripts and understanding how they meant for it to be read. So part of what we do here, well, actually the main thing of what we do here on the podcast is learn how to study the Bible.org. But some of the things that most people don't bother looking into or maybe kind of have the competencies to look into is, is the original manuscripts and what's going on. And some people just go cross-eyed, but they don't mind listening about it. And so what I'm telling you here is that when you read this in Hebrew, you're going to find out that the people before the Masoretic text came about, the people in Qumran, the people who wrote these things down, they all wrote Jonah, copied Jonah, to, to help us understand when to pause and how to understand the text. So what I'm relaying to you is the intention that's been lasting and preserved by God for thousands of years. This is the way the original author wanted you to study Jonah. Restated or stated differently, the author wanted you to study Jonah in two parts. And the first part was 1-1 through 2-10. Only then are you to pause, meditate on what's happened, and then move on. In other words, don't pick it apart, but read it all in unity and contemplate it within the whole of 1-1 to 2-10 before moving on. And so we're finishing up that section here. And those, those, those spaces, those indentations, these are all indications of how the ancient author wanted you to understand the scriptures. We are not free to understand <clears throat> excuse me, the scriptures however we want. The scriptures are given to us by God 
inspired, even in the indentations and the the pauses that we're supposed to have, and we're going to get to a pause that we're supposed to have in, at 117. All of these things are inspired by God. Do you understand what I'm saying here? The indentations indicating new sections and the pauses that are placed in the text in the Hebrew, which we'll get to again in just a minute, those pauses and these segments are not human divisions, but divisions from God Almighty himself who inspired people to write the story this way, the scriptures this way. With that in mind, let's consider something else about this text. So then we have to ask ourselves some questions about the text divisions. What is implied by this being one single unit, 1, 1 through 2, 10? What's implied by the repeated use of the word gadol, or great? And that appears in 1, 2, 4, 10, 12, 16, and 17, otherwise known as 2, 1. 1, 17 is 2, 1 in Hebrew. And how is this section unified? Now, we don't have the time to answer all these questions, but... These are questions that we need to learn to be asking ourselves as we read. And again, this is learn to study the Bible.org. And so we have to ask ourselves what, how, and why questions. So in getting to 117 or 21, from now on, I'm just going to call 117 21 because that's what it is in the Hebrew. Once they started putting in a numbering system. Still, it's all the same section. So there's a, there's a disagreement in scholarship over the word appoint. So in 117 in the ESV, here I go again. You know what? Let's just stick with the let's just stick with the American uh, version that we have in front of me because I'm going to mix it up the whole time. 117 in the ESV says, "And Yahweh appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah." So in the Septuagint and the Old Latin, it says to command. And in the Vulgate and the Arabic and the Syriac and the Targum, which are all very old, you guys, it says to prepare. There's this disagreement in scholarship over what, how to translate it. And people get caught up over the translation because there's, they're having these like deep theological, you know, discussions. Oh, Yahweh is, you know, capable of all things. And, and, you know, this, this speaks about appointing and all things are directed by him and there is nothing that isn't directed by him. And then other people will maybe translate it prepare differently or, or, or they'll translate it as command rather than appoint because one kind of speaks to predestination, even of a fish. The other speaks to God just spoke and did it right then and there. And then these people kind of go crazy with the implications of everything. Now, how I read the scriptures, this one in particular, and how Sasson, whom we've been kind of reading along with the entire time, and remember, Sasson would be considered a leading scholar in Jonah, we both say that really it's not about appointing. Because when you read the scriptures, that's just a repeated word. Do you remember, I think it was the first or second episode, how I talked about that there are several words in this book that are repeated time and time again, and that kind of implies or it be, Hebrew doesn't normally talk like that or read like that or write like that they don't use the same word over and over and over it's not department of redundancy department over and over they do it so if that's not their normal way of operation the question becomes why are they using these words over and over 
And Sasson said elsewhere, and I can't remember, I think it's in the first episode, where he talks about, well, that should give us pause and make us uh, be open. That should open up our minds to the fact that maybe this is a type of satire. The way it's written seems to indicate that this, all of this is not normal, but the point is still there. So a point, right, 117 and Yahweh appointed, appointed in our view, in Sasson's view and my view, it's less about what God is doing as one who is omnipotent and all these other words that we used to describe him, and more about just bringing into focus a story where there are several things that just keep happening. Now, I've never watched the movie um, uh, Lemony Snicket, A Series of Unfortunate Events, which that's actually a book series written by this one guy, and Lemony Snicket is his pen name. Still, I think you can kind of get the message from the movie. And I'm a Jim Carrey fan, but I haven't seen it yet. But supposing it's just as the title says, a series of unfortunate events, you can kind of understand a point here. Because previously, what else did he appoint? And throughout the whole book, what did he appoint? He appoints the winds, the tempests, the waves, all these other things, right? And then he appoints a fish, and then he appoints a plant, and then he appoints a wind again, so on and so forth. It's throughout the book. What's going on at the book level, at the literature level, right? Because this is a story read before a public audience. What's going on here is like the title of the movie, Lemony Snicket, A Series of Unfortunate Events. This is not about God's omnipotence and his ability to rule and reign over everything using the word appoint. That's a no-duh statement for the Israelite. This is more of a literary device to just keep the ball rolling where this dude just keeps running into issues, and we know who's causing the issues. It's Yahweh himself. So we don't need to get too caught up into that. However, what we do need to focus on is 117, so there are two sentences. The first sentence is, and Yahweh appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And the second sentence is, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So there's uh, an atnach, atnach. It's similar to selah in the Psalms that you'll see. It means to pause. It's not as long of a pause as selah, but still, when you read it in between those two sentences, there's an atnach, and that makes you pause for a moment. And so how it, this is how it actually reads. And remember, before I read this, there's a purpose for this pause. It's a literary device given for the audience to sit back and be on the edge of their seats. Can you sit back and be on the edge of your seat? You know what I'm trying to say, right? Where it's a cliffhanger. Think about a movie. Something happens and then it fades to black for like two seconds with, you know, this heightened music. And then it picks up in another scene. That's what's going on here. That's what the Atnach is. And it's in there for the reader. I bring that up because that was inspired by God for us to hear and to see. It's not in the English Bible, unfortunately. But that's how he wants us to read this so we can pause for a moment and be on the edge of our seats wondering what's going to happen to Jonah. So let me read it how it's supposed to be read. 117. And Yahweh appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah... Do you see what's going on here? Imagine being around the campfire at night 
or wherever, wherever they're reading this back in the ancient times, and just being captivated. Like, well, what's going to happen to Jonah? I, I bring that up because God wants us to understand, or God wants us to interpret the scriptures in this manner. That's why it's written like that. This is inspired literature. But what's more, this is literature, you guys. I drive that point home all the time. Maybe you're tired of it, but probably not. I'm going to assume the best. We have to read this as a story. A story, is, a story can still be true for those of you who want this to have actually happened. That doesn't make a difference what I'm saying. We just need to read this as a story, to read Jonah as a story, to listen to the main point of the book and interpret everything through the main point and read it all as a story. Otherwise, we're going to get it wrong. So like I said, this is just a literary cue. Um, and the belly, when it comes to the word belly, so, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Belly here doesn't actually mean stomach. It's just a Hebrew word for saying that Jonah's inside the fish. So think about like, um, what's that thing? The humpback whale, the biggest whale, right? Just think about the mouth, the size of the mouth and Jonah holding on to who knows what part. If, it, if it's a whale, I, I don't really care what it is. The point is that the Hebrew is not communicating that Jonah is actually inside of a stomach. The Hebrew is not communicating that Jonah is actually inside of a stomach. Okay, now we are on to 2-2. Two, two. So I'm going to read 2-1, uh, sorry. I'm going to read 2-1 through 2-9. Then Jonah prayed to Yahweh his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to Yahweh out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's 2, 1 through 9. Well, there's a little reminder going off on my computer for the background noise. So we have in this section what's called an imprecatory psalm. And an imprecatory psalm is, is inspired poetry meant to cause Yahweh to act. This is a point we're going to spend a little bit of time on because we need to understand it in its entirety. There's a lot of people out there who reject the goodness of God because they don't understand that God wants to be good to us. And in precatory psalms, when you read them, it really drives home the point that God wants to be good to us because they're inspired by Yahweh himself. 
So in this passage, there's a lot of things, there are a lot of things going on. First of all, I think one of the things I need to bring up, where's this portion at? In, well, you know what, this might get a little confusing, but I'm just going to say it anyway. In this psalm, we have other psalms quoted. I haven't studied this enough to know whether or not the psalms are older or newer than Jonah. But when I read Sasson, Sasson doesn't doesn't uh, conclude either way that it shows whether it's a later or an earlier date. Either way, something that we have to notice is that Jonah, his psalm doesn't appear to be original. Jonah's psalm appears to be somewhat original, somewhat applicable to his current situation, as well as mm, sampled, right? Think about hip-hop songs and how they bring in samples, right, of other songs and so on and so forth, especially underground hip-hop, right? For all of you out there who, like me, grew up on this stuff, even though I have a nice hardcore outro. So Jonah 2.2 says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. That's found in Psalm 18.6 and 120, verse 1. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. That's found in Psalm 30, verse 4. For you cast me into the deep, into the hearts of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. That's found in Psalm 69.2 and 42.7. Then I said, this is verse four. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. That's found in 31, 22. And then if you read Psalm 6c, which is the third section of Psalm uh, 2.6. Sorry, Jonah 2.6. If you read Jonah 2.6c, the third section of the verse six, you find, yet you brought up my life from the pit. That comes once again from Psalm 30, verse four. So some of this content is original and some of it isn't. One of the reasons I'm bringing this up is, as always, we need to learn how to study the Bible. When we read the scriptures, we need to slow down and realize that when we slow down, or by slowing down, we end up realizing whether or not what we're reading is unique to the author or from some other part of the scripture. And it's really important when, when a scripture is quoted or placed in to another um, scripture, right? Another book. Because then we need to go back and read the context of whatever's being quoted before we can fully or ever understand the original context and therefore how it may or may not be being used. Especially when it comes to what we call the New Testament. Because sometimes the authors of the New Testament will have Peter quoting uh, whatever, right? Quoting something somewhere in Acts. But when you go back and you read it, you're going to find out that either Luke or Peter or both wrote it and quote it wrong. They changed a couple things. It's really interesting because the author or the quoter, Peter, for example, they were comfortable changing what the scriptures actually say, as well as changing the meaning, the meaning. And that was often because it was a hidden meaning. And that's a longer conversation going back to 1 Corinthians 2. But the point is, if you don't know the original context of what is being quoted, you will never know what's actually being said in the context in which it's currently being used. For example, 
if you don't understand Psalm 18 or Psalm 120 or Psalm 30 or Psalm 69, then you won't understand what Jonah is saying. Because in an oral culture, people had this stuff memorized. So when Jesus was on the cross, he was quoting Psalm 22. Now, people miss this all the time, but Psalm 22 is actually a psalm of victory. How it ends is very different from how it starts out. And you guys know this, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in the end, in Psalm 22, it's actually a psalm of victory where where the author, the psalmist, and therefore Jesus on the cross is saying, my God, in fact, has not abandoned me. In fact, my God has vindicated me and proven me to be righteous and, and he will prosper me and I will uh, my enemies will be defeated. That's what Jesus was saying on the cross in Psalm 22. He wasn't saying that God actually abandoned him, but this was a shorthand way to say, my God sees me and I will be victorious. Listen, you guys, I don't care what your, what your uh, political beliefs are, but when I say build the wall or lock her up, you know precisely all of the other stuff that goes in it. And I say that because it, it just instantly, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Triggers is not the word I'm looking for. Maybe it is triggers. Either way, it instantly resonates and you know, I don't even think resonates is it. What I'm trying to say is that when I say build the wall or lock her up, you know what I mean. You can presume to know where I'm coming from. You may be wrong when it comes to actually me, but generally speaking, if somebody were to say that and to mean it, or, or if we were just to say MAGA, we wouldn't think Reagan. We would think President Trump. So when Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His, his Jewish audience sitting around understood that Jesus was declaring victory. And we all know that Jesus was declaring victory or that Jesus was victorious and that death wasn't going to defeat him. But we miss all the time that Jesus wasn't saying that he was being abandoned on the cross. We think he was being abandoned, but that's not what's going on. And this is how we study the scriptures. We understand the context in which something was stated. And by the way, that's uh, amongst other places, that's also in Luke, right? And so when, when you're reading it, you have to consider the purpose of the book as well and the audience of the book and whether or not this is high context or low context. So for the Jew, when they hear Jonah's prayer in Jonah 2, Jonah's psalm in Jonah 2, all of these, all of these things, Psalm 18, 30, 120, 69, 31, 42, they hear these things and, and, and they're hearing not a prophet running away. Instead, when this is being read aloud to an oral, uh, to an audience, right? When it's being read aloud to an audience, what they're hearing, what's actually happening, what's, what's the, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Is this a didactic device or what? I can't remember what the word is, but basically it's a device that triggers your memory. Whatever that's called, I can't recall in this moment, but that's what's happening. They, they almost zone out for a second because they're like, oh yeah, I heard that before. I heard that before. I heard that before. And it's especially the case because in the first four, in two, two through four, you have a bunch of Psalms being quoted. And so what, what happens in the audience, in the minds of the audience is that for a moment, they just begin to, you guys know how this is. When somebody begins to quote John 3.16, you begin to join in with them proving that you know the scriptures, or when John somebody quotes John 1, 4, 7, and 4, 7 through 8, 
you begin to finish it with them. Or the fruits of the Spirit, if they're just talking generally, right? Or when I'm saying something, you guys join in with me. And you finish the sandwich, I mean sentences, right? Okay, we already know how that whole thing works. That's what's happening here in Jonah. As Jonah begins to, as he said, cry out to Yahweh out of his distress, and he answered me, the audience is almost singing along. Do you see what's happening here? When we are so far removed from the biblical culture, we miss so much. But when we are steeped in the Bible and in its traditions and culture and time frame, in antiquity, we begin to understand it properly. So just as a song comes along, uh, comes on on the radio or the CD or the MP3 or whatever you're listening to it on, and you begin singing, the same thing happens here when Jonah 2, 2 through 4 is read aloud. The people begin singing along, whether verbally, audibly, or in their minds, because they know they've heard all this before. And then Jonah, and, and they're like, oh, wow, that's kind of strange. That's, that, that's funny that, that Psalm 69.2 was written in a totally different context, and now Jonah's utilizing it. Let me read that. It's verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And they're sitting there thinking, man, that was David's, right? And all of a sudden, like, it totally matches Jonah. And you get my point. It goes on and on and on. So as we learn to study the Bible, we must slow down and realize or ask ourselves whether or not what we're reading is unique to the author or originally from someplace else. But now let me address another portion, another important subject. We're going to go back to imprecatory psalms, right? So imprecatory psalms, like I said earlier, are psalms or poetry that's inspired by Yahweh, that is, words are given to the poet, to the prophet, anybody who's ever, who's ever doing the psalm, and, and it's meant to cause Yahweh to act. When you read the content of this Jonah's psalm, you begin to ask yourself some questions. For example, 2-2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. Okay, hold on a second. Like, let's just, let's just go with the narrative. Where in the world did Yahweh hear him and answer him? Because we don't actually have that in the text. Yet. Right? Or verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, and into the, hearts, uh, the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. This poem has a bunch of perfects and imperfects. What, what that means is some of this, Jonah has, is saying, happened already. And some of this is in the process of happening. And it goes back and forth, and it's really interesting. And, and how Hebrew poetry works, and maybe this is the case for all poetry. I'm not a poet. I don't study poetry. The most I study is Hebrew poetry. But Hebrew poetry, the first line is what he's saying. The second line is what in the world he meant. So the second line, slow down, read poetry. You're going to find out that the second line of any given verse of the stanza it expounds upon the first. 
So let's try this again. Two, two. I, here's the first line. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. And here's the second line. Out of the bell, belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. Do you see the, the similarity? He calls out in both of these stanzas. And in both of these stanzas, Yahweh hears him or answers him. Let's go to verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. That's the first line. Second line. All your waves and your billows passed over me. So in the first and the second half of verse 3, you have the waters coming over him. And it goes on and on. Or let's, let's go to verse 5. The first line is, the waters closed in over me to take my life. Second line, it expounds upon that first line. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. So the first part is the waters closed in over me to take my life. And the second line demonstrates just how far down he went. He went down to the roots of the mountains. Not the base, the roots of the mountains. And so far down, weeds were wrapped around his head. So that's another aid in interpretation when reading Hebrew poetry is that the first line expounds upon the se- or the second line expounds upon the first line. But what I really want to focus on in this imprecatory psalm is that Jonah is giving him an advanced praise. When you study this, you find out that Jonah is declaring something has happened that actually hasn't happened yet. I mean, look, Jonah is saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. But Jonah's inside the fish and nothing's happened yet. When my, uh, verse 7, when my life was fainting, was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Where did that happen? Like, other than him saying it, when did that happen? We don't have any proof that anything has happened. Jonah starts declaring what God has done, even though it hasn't been done yet. And do you know what the end result is? Look at 2.10. And Yahweh spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. I want to talk to you guys about the prosperity gospel here for a moment. You say, what? Like, how in the world, how do you go from the prayer to the prosperity? Just give me a second and listen. Jonah, Jonah declares that he's been saved. And he hasn't been saved. Jonah's inside the belly of the fish. He's inside the fish. And he hasn't been saved. And Jonah declares and starts naming it and proclaiming it and thanking God and giving him an advanced phrase. Advanced praise. Listen to verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. And then the second stanza, which explains the first one. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You guys, do you give thanksgiving before you've received something? No, you give thanksgiving after you've received something. And Jonah, before he receives something, begins to thank and praise Yahweh, to bless his name, to declare what Yahweh has done before it's ever been done. But do you understand what I'm saying here? This is an inspired psalm. So these words are actually coming from Yahweh himself. Yahweh is giving Jonah the words to thank him and praise him for what hasn't happened. And it causes Yahweh to get up, to rise up, to stand up off his throne and get to work. And the end result is that Yahweh gets to work. You guys, 
people just generally are so against the prosperity gospel. But let's just define biblical prosperity for just a moment. Actually, I'm pretty sure I did it last episode, but we're going to do it again because we're in the context in which we need to study it properly. So let's think about Abraham. Blessed to be a curse is what it says about Abraham, right? Blessed to ruin everybody's lives. Blessed because the Savior will not come through Abraham, but blessed just because. That's not what it says, right? Abraham was blessed to be a blessing so that the whole cosmos, the whole earth, rather, might be blessed through him. And Jesus, at a certain point, comes through him. Then you think about Ecclesiastes, and I'm going to get really, really lengthy here for a moment in Ecclesiastes because it's necessary. Of course, I'm going the wrong way. It's worth turning to, so give me a second, please. So Ecclesiastes, you know, so often we think the only thing, generally speaking, we remember from Ecclesiastes is a poor translation, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity, and we kind of translate that into useless, useless, everything is useless, why are we doing this, it's all about ourselves, we need to change and become more like Christ. Well, first of all, yes, we need to change and become more like Christ, that's a no-duh statement. But when you actually read Ecclesiastes, you're going to find out that it contradicts what everybody, generally speaking, contradict. Everybody says, no, God doesn't want you to be happy. God wants you to be holy. Well, yes, God wants you to be holy. But Ecclesiastes, which was inspired by God, Ecclesiastes says that God wants you to be happy. Now, I'm not going to ignore the persecutions that, that we are assigned to, the suffering that we're assigned to, the holiness that we're assigned to, which at times means self-denial. But as I don't ignore those things... I ask that you also do not ignore what the scriptures say about God wanting us to be happy. Listen, this is how you study the Bible. You let the text speak and you submit yourself to the scriptures. You do not change the scriptures for your own sake to maintain your own theology, your own system, your own perspective. We adjust our systems, theology, and perspective to what the scriptures tell us to believe. It's not the other way around. And so when you read Ecclesiastes, as well as other parts in the Bible, which we will get to momentarily, you find out that indeed Yahweh wants us to be happy. So I'm going to read 2.9. No, I'm not. I'm going to read 2.24 through 26. There is nothing better for a person. This is inspired by God, right? There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find his enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have, what's it say? Enjoyment. For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Not just wisdom and knowledge, you guys, but joy. God has given the one who pleases him wisdom and knowledge and J-O-Y. But to the sinner... He has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. Wow. 
Ecclesiastes 2, 2, uh, 2, 24-26 says that the one who displeases God, Yahweh gives that person the business of gathering and collecting to the one who pleases God so that that person might be filled with joy and wisdom and knowledge. But you know what? It doesn't stop there. 3, 12-13. Yes, let's turn to it. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful. And to do good. Do you guys know that the, one of the fruits of spirit is joy? Oh, but God doesn't want you to be happy, right? Uh, 3.12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. And also, in case you want to argue with me that happiness and joy are not equivalent. Okay, maybe you can make that argument. But then you're going to have to deal with Ecclesiastes 3.13, which says, Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil this is god's gift to man now that whole sec that thing that I just said this is god's gift to man that's not unique to the reverend deacon ryan Kaysen. that's in the scriptures it says i'm quoting the esv i'm reading the esv it says this is god's gift to man what is that gift that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil this is all relevant to uh, Jonah 2, and we're going to get back to Jonah 2 here in a moment, but not before I get through this lengthy quotation of Ecclesiastes. And then look at Ecclesiastes 3.22. So I saw that there was nothing better than that man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Oh man, wow. And then we have 5.18-19. through 19. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. You hear that? He's given them wealth and possessions and power to enjoy wealth and possessions and power and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. Verse 20. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. That's to say that he's going to be so distracted by the joy and the, the, the enjoyment, as it says in Ecclesiastes 5, of, of his wealth and possessions and power that God has given him, that he's, that he's not going to remember the days of his life. He's just having too much of a good time. Time flies when you're having fun. And then 9-9. No, that's 7-9, isn't it? 9-9 to 9-10. Maybe just 9-9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. And then finally, 11-9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. Indeed, God wants us to be happy. According to Ecclesiastes, according to the author, according to the inspired 
uh, or the one who gave the inspiring, which is the Holy Spirit, according to God who gives the word. And then Hebrews 9, 6 through 15. This is my, my final quote. And this is really vital for us to understand all that. Because somebody's going to say, well, what about, the, what about the New Testament, Reverend Deacon? Well, let me tell you about the New Testament. Because some of you guys think that there's a separation between the two. Not all of you, of course. But some of you. So Hebrews 9, 6 through 15. Uh, no, sorry. Uh, it's 2 Corinthians. I don't know why I thought it was Hebrews. So this section is speaking about financial matters. I'm going to read Hebrews 9, 6 through 15. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. He's talking about money, guys. He's talking about tithing, by the way. So he's talking about money here. That is Paul through the Spirit. Verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. He's talking about finances here. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. What Paul just said through the Spirit there is, God's able to give you the finances so that you won't ever be broke. As it is written, this is verse 9, and he's making a quote here of what we call the Old Testament, but something they were living their lives based off of, 9-9. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous Oh, blessed to be a blessing. Do you hear that, guys? You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service, talking about tithing here, is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is all but is overflowing. Oh my goodness, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, tithing and supplying the needs of others, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the good news of Christ and the generosity, financial generosity, of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. This surpassing grace of God contextually is talking about finances. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. I'm bringing up all of this stuff to help us understand that our God has created humans on this earth to represent him. Our God is not a poor God. Our God wants to bless his humans to be a blessing to the world. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation and for those, not everybody in this audience, but for those who want to reject that God wants to prosper others, then you're rejecting the fact that God has chosen to... Uh, so, so let me say it like this. The way God has decided to provide the needs for others is through humans. 
The way that God has decided to pay your priest, your bishop, your deacon, your pastor, your associate pastor, your children's minister, is through your tithes. In fact, it says that the ministers of God have a right to your paychecks. Talking about first fruits. That's just what Paul says in Corinthians. If you don't agree, well, then you have to argue with him. But my point here is that if you want to deny that God wants to bless you financially, as well as all the other things, joy, like we talked about earlier from Ecclesiastes, then you're going to deny the fact, you're going to deny God the medium through which he wants to provide for your pastor, your priest, your bishop, your deacon, your children's minister, your whomever. You, we really need to begin to accept what God has for us so we can meet the needs of the saints. But how does this all, uh, <laughs> how does this apply to Jonah, right? Somebody's out there saying, get to Jonah. Well, let me tell you how it applies to Jonah. Our faith matters. Does it not? I mean, is, is there a time when our faith doesn't matter? Jonah's declaring long in advance before he ever gets tossed up, right? Three in the belly, three days and three nights. And he declares, God has heard me. God has delivered me. Though I go down to the belly of Sheol, God has delivered me. He's naming it and proclaiming it, you guys. That's just straight up what's happening. This reminds me of Matthew 9, uh, uh, 27 through 31. You guys know this well. It's a very short passage. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, Listen closely, guys. According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, so on and so forth, right? But, but what does Jesus say? According to my faith, according to the faith of everybody else around, according to the faith of the, the, those in Jerusalem? No, he says, according to your faith, O ye blind men, let it be done to you. And then James 1, 5 through 7, if any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously, but... Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. So this has to do with Jonah 2, 2, uh, 1 through 9, in that its relevance is that, that Jonah begins to give an advanced praise to his God and declares in advance what God has done for him. Do you understand that it is acceptable and good in God's sight to say what God is going to do for you and to proclaim it and to believe it so that it might be done according to your faith? Do you understand that these words were given to Jonah by the Holy Spirit? That's why I started out this whole section telling you that in, uh, what is this? 2 Samuel 23, 1-7, it says that David prophesies and, has his, and, and you know, proclaims his psalm by the Spirit of Yahweh, that the psalm is, Yahweh, is filled with Yahweh's words. The whole reason I brought that up is to get us to realize that, that Jonah is naming it and proclaiming it in advance because God has given him the words to name and proclaim in, the van, in advance for his deliverance. And, and, and to further emphasize this, I want you guys to understand something super important. 
God didn't give Jonah the words to pray about God's will being done. This wasn't our father in heaven, you know, so on and so forth, right? God didn't give Jonah the words to, for Jonah to start saying, Lord, reveal to me your will. Jonah already knew his will at the beginning, right? He heard, he stood before the word of the Lord, took off, and then he has the divine encounter when he's, quote unquote, sleeping in, uh, what is this, verse, verse 6, 5 through 6. 1, 5 through 6. He knows what God wants from him. So he's not praying, Lord, reveal your will to me that I might pray your will and obey you. He's not saying, Lord, your will be done. Lord, your will be done, you know, 13,000 times for three days and three nights. Jonah is just praying for his prosperity. And by prosperity, the, te- the context is Jonah is praying that his life might be spared. But the way he prays it is just he declares God has spared me. That's that's the summary. Listen to verse nine, the last the last word or stanza. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Now look at verse ten. And Yahweh spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. God did what Jonah declared, and Jonah declared it because God gave him the words to declare it. I think. We need to learn, we can learn from this lesson that God, we, we, that we, need to, we need to be okay professing the words that God gives us about our future. God wants to be good to us. Don't forget what the, what the psalmist says. Yahweh delights in prospering his servants. Now, if you only have that in one place in the scriptures, would you need to hear it more than once to really begin to believe that Yahweh delights in prospering his servants? If John 3.16 was only written once, which it was only written once, would you need it to be written several other places before you believed it? Or would you believe it once because it was written once? So, so we've concluded studying the text today. And, and why we've concluded is that, what we, that all that's really going on in this text or the things that I've said, but but basically, you have Jonah proclaiming victory in advance. And I and I sat here and I camped on this or whatever you want to call it, because that's what the text is saying. We must here at learn to study the Bible.org, we, I, and Sean, who helps me, we, we do our best to allow the text. And now listen, we're not perfect. We don't do it all the time. Sometimes we argue with it. That's human nature. But I'm trying to demonstrate you guys, when you study the scriptures, you're supposed to let the text speak. And we're supposed to close our mouths. We need to listen and let it tell us what to do with our lives. No matter what, no matter what the conclusion of the text is, if the conclusion of the text is, quote-unquote, the prosperity gospel, then you guys, we need to adjust our perspective on the prosperity gospel. And, and again, maybe we adjust our definition, but God still wants to prosper us because we are blessed to be a blessing to the world. And, and, and our financial blessings are how we, pray, how we pay our bishops, our priests, the Reverend Deacon Ryan Kaysen and all other deacons you might have, your associate pastor, your senior pastor, your discipleship pastor, your children's ma- This is how we pay. By saying, yes, Lord, bless me more that I might tithe and give to your church and let your kingdom be done. Or did you not read the, the beginning of Nehemiah? He's saying, uh, is it Nehemiah? No, it's Ezra. It's uh, Zechariah. It's one of the prophets. 
where God's like, listen, the only reason you guys have holes in your po- in your pockets is because you haven't been tithing. So I've been putting holes in your pockets because you all you did was you take that money I give you and you've been building your houses, lining it with cedar while my house sits in ruins. But then the prophet says, bring the whole tithe into my house so that my house might be rebuilt. And then you will be overflowing with finances when you tithe faithfully. God wants to give you money so that you might fund the kingdom work. But it just so happens, as it says in Ecclesiastes, that you also get to enjoy your wealth and your power. And it just says, enjoy, you guys, your possessions. It says your wealth, power, and possessions in Ecclesiastes. You get to enjoy these things. It's this wonderful symbiotic relationship. And we have to learn to adjust our perspective to what God wants to do in our lives. And he wants to do it because it's what funds his kingdom work. This is just the method he's decided to to, to use to fund kingdom work. So receive the blessings. Okay, last section. But first, a sip of my uh, tea that's now very cold. I'm once again drinking this uh, wild sweet orange. I bet it'd be pretty good iced. Okay, last section we're going to deal with today is scholarly, is a a scholarly, oh my goodness, you guys, a scholarly critique of how not to study the Bible. Now, in the intro podcast, I mentioned Julius A. Brewer. He's a PhD, was a PhD. His, uh, His dissertation, I think it was a dissertation. Let me just give you the exact title. It's a... A Critical and Exegetical Commentary on Jonah. Now, Brewer was, this was written in 1912, was a philologist. So he studies languages. He's very competent. But there's an issue with Brewer. Brewer's piece is is well read. uh, Sasson even reads it and quotes it. But the issue with, with Sasson is that he outright rejects with full certainty, as in he's not even open to the possibility, that Jonah is historical. He's just made up in his mind, no, there's no way that this is historical. This could not have happened. Martin Luther, Reformation boy, same thing. So Brewer asks some questions. He asks, how is how was it possible that a true prophet should disobey a direct divine command? The thing is, I mean, Brewer's not, you know, ignorant or wasn't ignorant, but he acts like he didn't read the Bible. This is why biblical literacy is important. This is why reading it all the time is important so we can remember and recall other things that contradict our silly questions or Brewer's silly questions or anybody else who might bring them up. Jeremiah, do you think Jeremiah wanted to keep his mouth shut? Do you remember the point where he's like, I want to keep my mouth shut, but if I do, there's like a fire in my bones and I can't help but speak? It's God who's forcing Jeremiah to speak. Because remember, Jeremiah is suffering for saying what God is forcing him to say. And and he says he doesn't want to say it. And Brewer's over here like, how is it possible that Jonah could disobey if he's a true prophet? Guess what? Prophets are humans. Except for Jesus, who also is human, but he was fully God. And then what do you think about Ezekiel? Do you remember the section where Ezekiel, where Yahweh tells Ezekiel, guess what, man, I'm taking your wife and you're not even allowed to sigh from being sad. How do you think Ezekiel felt? But God forced the prophet to keep his mouth shut. 
And if you read, if you read Jonah, I'm pretty sure Jonah's being forced to do God's will, but he's being forced to do God's will in a way that the author of Jonah wants to show, which is a merciful, kind, generous way, right? That's, that's what's been going on in Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Over and over and over, it's declared through examples, not just through uh, quoting it, that Yahweh is a gracious God. And this comes from Jonah 4, but it comes from Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Yahweh is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So we have over here Brewer in his 1912, you know, critical and exegetical commentary on Jonah saying how there's no way this is historical because if it was, you wouldn't find a prophet disobeying him like this. Here we have Jonah being forced to obey. Prophets are not perfect. And then he says, he asks, is it likely that God should send a storm simply in order to pursue a simple person and thus cause many others to suffer too? It's like Brona, uh, Brona, uh, Brewer hasn't read, uh, read, man, this sentence is difficult. It's like Brewer hasn't read Romans 9 that says that Yahweh creates people, some vessels of, of destruction, you know, for vessels of mercy. So we can show to the vessel of mercy how great and wonderful and kind and, and excellent he is towards them. And, and it's basically that phrase that, were it not for the grace of God, there go I. Romans 9 says, God, using Pharaoh as an example, and Jacob and Esau as an example, sometimes the Lord just creates vessels of wrath so that the vessels of mercy know how good Yahweh is. And then he asks, well, what language did Jonah speak? I mean, you guys, I probably shouldn't be saying it like this, but like the questions he's asking are ridiculous to me. He asks, what language did Jonah speak? As if... God, the creator of heaven and earth, couldn't make Jonah prophesy in another language. He also acts like people weren't fluent in multiple languages at the time. I mean, look at Acts 2, right? Tongues? Speaking in tongues is not this bouncy, bubbly, whatchamacallit, right? Tongues is a human who doesn't speak Russian speaking Russian and declaring God's word. Or a Japanese person speaking... I don't know, you guys, Tamaru, right, or Guamanian. Think, think, think of a different person who isn't born, raised in the multiple languages, never spoken another language before, declaring God's word through a language they've never spoken before. Croatian, or whatever, whatever people speak all over the world. That's what tongues are. And, and Brewer asks, like, what language did Jonah speak? There's no way this is historical because Jonah spoke Hebrew. He's, that question, you guys, just makes no sense to me. If Yahweh can speak the world into existence and cause, and walk on water and cause the axe head to float and say, Lazarus, come out and cause the, the soup not to be poisoned anymore by adding flour to it. I'm pretty sure Jonah could speak whatever language the Ninevites spoke. The list goes on and on. But uh, as someone wise once said, except not kind of wise, much learning has made Brewer mad. You know, another thing that happens is Brewer also reads according to his own preferences. So he cites other scholars who dissect the text and hands them down. And these guys presume to know more 
about uh, how the textual reception, right? How it's been transmitted, textual transmission, how it's been transmitted over all these years. And these guys who he's citing and talking about are saying, we don't believe that this is original or that is original. Such things like two, three, upon your holy temple. He's saying, these people he's quoting are saying that these are not original. But I have talked to you guys in the past when it comes to textual criticism that the experts, the leading experts in the world, demonstrate to us that there are no mistakes in these things, in the original things, that they are copied so perfectly up until the time of the printing press that this really is a non-issue. It doesn't make any sense. And, and the last thing that Brewer says through it all, uh, and let me quote this. Let me see what page I have this thing on. I don't even have what page this is on. I think it's like on page, I don't know, guys, I can't recall, but let me just say this. It's from his A Critical and Exegetical Commentary on Jonah. But Brewer says that chapter two, he says this, quote, It is a psalm of thanksgiving for help received in great danger, not a prayer for help in the midst of danger. The danger is past. The psalmist is safe. So this cannot be the prayer which Jonah prayed or which the author of the story would have put into Jonah's mouth while he was inside the fish, for it does not fit the situation, end quote. So what's going on here is that Brewer doubts that the psalm was actually composed by the author of the story. And he believes that the story, like this has unity to the story, but it should, this psalm should be placed after 2.10. In other words, Jonah... Uh, Brewer thinks that two, one, uh, two, two through nine should go after ten. So that way it reads, the Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah out on the dry land. And then Jonah starts declaring thankfulness for being delivered. Remember, you guys, a moment ago, this is why I was talking about Jonah giving an advanced praise. Brewer doesn't believe that Jonah's giving an advanced praise because of what's written. He's saying this doesn't make any sense. He's giving him an advanced praise. If this is supposed to be here, then Jonah's giving him an advanced praise for something that hadn't happened yet. So Jonah's, Jonah uh, Brewer's theology is that you should not name it and proclaim it. Uh, Brewer, sorry, Brewer's, did I say that? Brewer's theology is that you should not name and proclaim that which hasn't happened yet. But Brewer's fundamentally misunderstanding what an imprecatory psalm is. It's inspired by God to get God to rise up and act on your behalf. And he's not doing that. He's not believing in that. He's not letting the text say what it says. And the, my big issue with this is that while he's a philologist, he's not a textual critic expert. And we have thousands of years of history demonstrating this stuff just doesn't get rearranged and mixed up and messed around with. It's maintained perfectly to the T. And I told you guys this last time. If they think the Y, which looks like a 7, should have been a 1, what they do is they write a note in the margin. They don't change the text. If they think the 1 should have looked like a 7, the Vav should have looked like a Yod, even though they know that that's what it is, they don't change the text Instead, what they do is they put a note in the margins that demonstrate what it's supposed to be, but they never change the text. Even if it would help the, the next copyist, the next scribe, they don't bother doing it because they consider it a sin to change the text from what was handed down, from what was handed down 
They refuse to do it. Rather, they put a note in the margin. And there aren't notes in the margins, you guys. Placing Jonah 2 through 9, 2, 2 through 9 after verse 10. So this is an, I bring this up as an example to what happens to you, to us. If we don't let the text speak, let the text be where it's at, and, and conform our minds to it. We begin to think differently about God because we think we know better than the scribes over the thousands of years that copied and handed it down to us. We don't know better. We need to trust God in the transmission of the text. And we do that by reading it in its final form and letting it speak. This is the way you study the Bible. Do not depart from it. See ya.